I'm interrupting my own podcast to talk to you about Anchor. Anchor is brought to you by Spotify and is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It will also help you distribute your podcast across popular podcast hosting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Best of all, you can make money from your podcast on Anchor with no minimum listenership. So for those of us just starting out, this is very helpful. And do you know how much it costs to have everything you need to make a podcast in one place? 100% free. Yep, you heard me right. You can do all of this and make money for free. So if you have been thinking about starting your own podcast, now is your chance. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, I'm Yan. Hi, I'm Yvonne. Welcome to Lost and Refound Podcast. We're a podcast discussing our personal journeys as modern Asian women and sharing inspiring stories from within our community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lost and Refound Podcast. We're your hosts, Yan and Yvonne. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Yan. How's your weekend going? My weekend is going pretty good. Sometimes I wake up on a Sunday and I think, man, I really don't want Monday to come. (laughs) So that happened again, but that's okay because I had a good routine. I made some juice. We made some breakfast. We're feeling good and relaxed. It's spa day. That's how I relax myself (laughs) before a a hectic Monday, right? (laughs) I don't know why you say sometimes. That's every Sunday for me. Actually, yesterday afternoon, I was cooking and I looked at Sable and I, I go, is today Saturday or Sunday? <laughs> today is Saturday. I was like, oh my God, thank God. Yeah. yeah so that's every Sunday. <laughs> if I say sometimes, it makes me feel a little bit better about myself. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I think that's pretty normal. Pretty sure no one looks forward towards Monday. Yeah. Well, if someone out there has a job that they really love or oh, a maybe. week that they really love, please let us know. <laughs> then they'd be working through the weekend. Oh, that's true. Okay. All right. Well, nonstop, nonstop weekday then. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, so today marks our first episode in Asian American History Month, and we are kicking off the month with two very exciting episodes. The special guest for both of these episodes is none other than my own mom, Jenny Lee. I have invited my mom on this podcast because in the midst of all of this violence and discrimination against not just Asians, but all minorities, I want to share immigration stories from real people. So often I hear this argument that immigrating to America is so easy. Well, guess what, peeps? It certainly is not. My cousin has been working with immigration lawyers for over five years now and have had to invest over 500000 in American companies as part of her immigration process. And she's still not here yet. Um, and she still have years to go. So it's quite a process, but n- most non-immigrants do not know the side of the story. So I have asked my mother to come on and talk about her experience coming to this country. I've heard the story before and has always been the prime example of what a strong woman my mother is, because I personally cannot imagine being brave enough to, to take those steps. However, since it is my mother and as her daughter, I can convince her to give us a little bit more of her time. We have decided to split this into two episodes. I think to tell the immigration story, it's also important to understand why someone may want to immigrate to another country. 
So the first episode will be focused on her experience growing up in China. My mother grew up during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Both of these are huge historic events that is not often talked about in the West and honestly not talked about in China either because of their propaganda. So the Great Leap Forward lasted four years from 1958 to 1962. It was a campaign launched by Chairman Mao Zedong to reconstruct the country into the Communist Party. The Great Leap Forward caused the worst Chinese famine in its history, costing tens of millions of lives. It's estimated the range is between 15 to 55 million deaths. This is then followed by the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1967. It was launched again by Mao to purge remnants of capitalist and traditional elements from the Chinese society. The death toll for this event is estimated to up to 20 million people. Admittedly, I knew very little about these events growing up and had very little interest in history when I was in school. But now that I'm older, I have much more a curiosity into what it was like growing up during that time. So without further, any further ado, please help me welcome my mom to the podcast. Hi, mom. Hi, Yan. Hi, Yvonne. I'm very glad to be here. And thank you for inviting me. We are very honored for you to be here. I know it took a little bit of time pulling <laughs> to, to convince you to come on, but I'm very, very appreciative that you are willing to come up and, and talk to us about your story. Yes, as, as much um, motivated I am, and I'm nervous too, because I'm not used to this kind of a format. And uh, in some cases, it's hard to go back. And I'm sure about, uh, the, the life and the events that uh, happened in my life, especially in the early days, they're quite emotionally painful. But just one small correction, if I may, and the Cultural Revolution you just mentioned is 1966 to 1967. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't notice, <laughs> it said 1966 to 1976. It lasted for 10 years. Oh, okay. So typo on my end. Yes, I was researching yeah. this morning <laughs> what, what exact numbers, but ten years. I was I was thinking like one year. That's it felt like that's kind of short for what. But okay, ten years. That makes more sense. So nineteen sixty seven. A lot more painful. <laughs> ten years rather than years. one year. Yes. Yeah, which means almost uh, the entire uh, my generation's youth. Yeah, that's crazy long time for that. And yes, I remember, I mean, you have told me bits and pieces of your childhood, nothing like from start to finish, but bits and pieces. And I know they're very traumatizing and very emotional. And, you know, Yvonne and I often talk about generational trauma on our podcast. You know, that's trauma carried from one generation to the next. And I feel like this is a relatively new concept that people are talking about now. I didn't hear a lot about people talking about generation trauma in the previous generations, but I think people are starting to recognize, you know, what happens to one generation gets carried over because all the memories and the trauma, like you, I don't think have ever truly dealt with the trauma you experienced in your childhood. I know I've never heard you talking about, you want to talk to a therapist about what happened to you, you know, during your early childhood, but all of that will compound into trauma as you grow into an adult and the decision you make as an adult and the fears that you may have and how you choose to live your life. And I feel like this must have impacted millions, you know, of Chinese people growing up during that time. In my generation as an Asian in Chinese, it's very common that uh, we swallow 
mm-hmm. whatever the pain and tapped out and just carry on. That's in our blood, in our bones. It's a very different from the modern days of a, a newer generation, especially in Western culture and counseling and uh, psychological help. They're all available and uh, we had never heard of those terms. <laughs> There's nothing available. And so it's a very different growing up experience and that carried over to the adult years. Whatever the difficulties uh, I encountered, it's just you try to figure out yourself and find your way out. You, you fall, you get up, you move forward. Big or small steps, that's the only way. Never think of any other choices because <laughs> that's uh, the way we are, yeah. Yeah, in one of our previous episodes, we were talking about a book that was written by this Chinese girl, and she spoke the concept of chiku, which is, I was telling, you know, Yvonne and our guest at the time, Nilan, where I was saying, this is like every concept that a Chinese child has been told growing up. The number one thing you learn is chiku, because life is hard, and you gotta eat that bitterness and not, you know, and just move on now that it affects you, which I agree. It's very different than how, you know, not just my generation, but like the, the generation, my children's generation, we are now teaching them not, not shiku, the opposite, <laughs> right? You have to live for your passion and be happy to show full gratitude, which is a very new concept. And if you have a uh, bitterness and you, you, you speak out and you seek for whatever the con. Um, comfort and and uh, uh, counsel you can mm-hmm. and yeah in my generation and it's it's just not the case and <laughs> you give it up yes yeah you give it up okay so let's get into your childhood um first just before all this happened before Mao came into power and started the Great Leap Forward and started the Cultural Revolution. I know you were probably young back then. Do you have any memories of what it was like before compared to what it, how China turned into? Mao established China, mm-hmm. the People's Republic of China, mm-hmm. since 1949. Okay. So he took over from Chiang Kai-shek mm-hmm. and uh, won the war. And so ever since 1949, that started uh, Mao era, mm-hmm. all the way continued to 1976, which marked the end of a cultural revolution. So I grew up in that period. And in my childhood in the 50s, even though there were political movements almost nonstop, one after another, not mm-hmm just a great leap forward that started in 1958. Long before that, just right after the establishment of the country, the communists took over the Mm -hmm. power and there was uh, the anti-corruption so-called and uh, anti-right movement. You probably have heard of a uh, hundred flowers uh, bloom and a uh, hundred uh, schools of thoughts uh, contend. And that movement and rectification movement, that was also in 1957. All those movements uh, prior to Great Leap Forward, it was a nonstop. But I was young 
And uh, I didn't understand those. I was living with my mother who was a revolutionist, followed the Mao and in early days. So she was a high ranked um, government official and uh, she held a very high position. She, at that time in the 50s, was uh, the, um, the leader of a textile factory that had uh, almost 8,000 employees. And uh, she really, through her very hard work, turned around to the factory and made that uh, um, highly profitable from uh, being almost uh, bankrupt. But those uh, um, movements were going on and without me knowing because I was too young. And she, at the end of the 1950s herself, was being a target of uh, her own party. But I, I didn't know mm-hmm. that much. In my memory, in 1950s, that was a happy time. Mm-hmm. Life was difficult. We didn't have that much, but we were better off than a lot of um, workers, regular workers, families, and uh, let alone peasants. We had enough, and we had a nanny always. I had uh, a pretty happy childhood, Mm. all the way to Cultural Revolution that started in 1966. That started really all my nightmares. It's almost uh, overnight because prior to that, and I was young, when Cultural Revolution started in 1966, I was 12 years old, Mm. finishing up my last year of uh, elementary school. Before that, and my mother did not talk to me about what she had gone through mm-hmm. and being a target of uh, political uh, movements. And I did not know. I was rather simply happy and all believed in Mao and the communism and everything the party was teaching us because that's the only voice mm-hmm. we had. Yep. There's nothing else. And there was a, never a question in my mind that why this, why that? Even when Cultural Revolution started in 1966 and I was 12 years old and my father was among the very first one, the high level leaders being nationally criticized And all of a sudden, he was uh, nationally famous in the very, very bad way, the worst way you can ever imagine. And because of his last name, Huang, was rare at that time. Mm -hmm. And it's still rare now. (laughs) And I was, uh, um, my last name was after him. And people could instantly recognize me by just looking at my my name and relate me to him because his name was so well known in the very early start of 
Cultural Revolution in 1966. The date is June the 4th. He was the president of Nanjing University. His name and another, another person who was uh, the president of a Peking University. And the two of them were publicly criticized nationwide. And overnight, it was so well known, and especially because of the rarity of his last name or my last name, I started having such nightmare. Wherever I went, people seemed to relate me to him. I got beaten up and people threw all kinds of things to me, small rocks and uh, uh, banana leaves and whatever you can think of and saying bad things. One day I came home, my sister who was uh, four years older just cried and I had no idea what was going on. She had me take off my shirt Someone wrote a bad words on my back down Kuang Yaming. Kuang Yaming is the name of my father. This was very common and it was everyday experience. So at that time, and I was so young and that was the first time that uh, the whole world was upside down because uh, uh, Prior to that, I was always a model student, was always uh, um, happy and uh, believed in everything that I was taught, believed in the bright future. And all of a sudden, the, the world was upside down. I couldn't figure out. And in my very young and inexperienced brain, but the, interestingly enough, there's one thing I, like many, many others uh, in my age at that time, in the same environment, never had a doubt of any wrongdoings, possible wrongdoings of Mao, of the Communist Party, because that's just unthinkable. And uh, life was extremely hard overnight. I couldn't go anywhere without being publicly insulted. Even at home, those uh, so-called big characters uh, posters put there by the Red Guards, they were just an inch and uh, a foot increase overnight, one after another, and uh, criticized us, the whole family. That was uh, uh, 1966 in June. Actually, Cultural Revolution started uh, by the big uh, editorial on the two major newspapers and one magazine. And these three publications were at that time the direct voice of uh, central government. In other words, direct voice of uh, Mao. My father was uh, the early target because he was a scholar to begin with. 
he was a communist, but he was a scholar. And uh, among the communists, scholars were always targets for the communist party. They were afraid of scholars' new ideas and critical thinking. There were numerous um, political movements with the effort of shutting those voices down. Early June of 1966, that was the very early starting point of the Cultural Revolution, 10 years Cultural Revolution. And my father was nationally criticized and denounced. And he himself was personally put in jail. That's when my life was turned upside down. In my 12 years old brain, it was extremely confusing. And I was a model student just yesterday. And all of a sudden I became a target of uh, all the mass movements wherever I went. I had uh, no idea why. Cultural revolution lasted for 10 years. The worst years in my life and also in my mind happened so suddenly because before that, a lot of those uh, political movements, I did not have a personal experience with. The movements I just uh, listed, those uh, anti-right movements and uh, those uh, Great Leap Forward, I experienced, but I was so young during the Great Leap Forward which resulted the Chinese Communist Party labeled that as a natural famine, three years. Actually, natural disaster was only a very small part of it. Mainly, it was caused by the Great Leap Forward. But uh, in order to divert the blame, and it became in their propaganda, it's all the natural disaster. That was the time that tens of millions of people died of hunger. Village after village was, were just wiped out. But I did not personally suffer that much. I knew that life was hard. But I remembered uh, one chicken costed 20 yuan. At that time, a worker's monthly income was about that amount. And one egg would have cost the five yuan. It was just a very difficult time, but uh, at least uh, both my parents had a high position and a higher salary. I didn't personally suffer hunger. And I didn't know at a young age that uh, a lot of people died of hunger until I was an adult. And at that time, in my mind, it was just natural disaster. And we just had to tighten our belt and try to move on. But a cultural revolution, that was really direct experience, especially with my father's miserable fortune. He was uh, separated from family. He was uh, publicly criticized, insulted, including both verbal and uh, physical. 
and he was beaten. He was going through incredible insult and abuse. And then he was uh, put in jail and uh, formal or informal, isolated for years. He couldn't do anything for anybody else. He couldn't even protect himself. His life was not in his own hands. And uh, we were all suffering, but uh, none of us could do anything about it. Cultural Revolution started in June in 1966, and I was 12. And at that period, you can actually draw a parallel with the visual impression of the most recent uh, insurrection in Washington, D.C. I was so scared, literally, because all the memories during early years of a cultural revolution became alive. You multiply that thing with the millions in China, everywhere. That was the situation. And uh, all the schools were closed. A lot of the workers in factories were encouraged to join the revolution. The whole country was upside down. I personally, at that young age, witnessed killing, blood. I felt almost like a movie playing in front of my eyes, except they are real. And that's how chaotic the country was. At the same time, in my little 12 years old and 13 years old brain, we were just unquestionable to the leadership of Mao. And whatever he said, we just blindly follow. A lot of the families fighting internally because the parents became the targets and uh, the students, in order to, to show their red heart to the great leader of Chairman Mao, would uh, stand up, quoting quote, and criticizing their own parents. And some kids even made up things in order to show how revolutionary they, all, they were. It was so chaotic that lasted for a few years. Then I was sent down to the countryside. That was also Mao's call for the students to be taught by workers, peasants, and the soldiers. Because in the school, you only learn from the books. And that was supposed to be detached from real life. In real life, your teachers should be workers, peasants, and the soldiers. So I was sent down to the countryside when I was 16. It's like a youth camp in reality. Work in the field for anywhere between eight hours to almost 20 hours, depending on the season. And in the busy season, you just you spend your, your life in the field. Even though we were planting rice, we only got to eat good rice when we had a harvest for a few meals. Whatever we harvested, they were all collected and transported to other parts of the country. What's left to us were those rice that are with, uh, mixed with uh, stones and the bugs and all kinds of things. And the uh, nutrition was just not there. And uh, in the country, you just can't believe the poverty. And in the peasant who served as a, a technical 
consultant, so to speak, to our youngsters, schoolers who did not know anything about planting. I can never forget that thing. I went to his house. His wife showed me the only jewelry, quote unquote, that uh, she had. That was a piece of uh, red yarn on Chinese New Year. And she would put on her hair and she treasured that piece so carefully and wrapped with an old newspaper saved for a year for that occasion. All her kids were like wild, no clothes on. They all share one set of clothes in the winter. They share one blanket and just not going out in the summer. It was like a whole flock of uh, birds <laughs> went out and all naked. That was the life then in the country. We were not well fed. <laughs> that was for sure. And we worked like child labor. That's the, the youth of our life during which you should have been in school. Yeah, I literally missed the middle school and high school. I returned back to Shanghai in 1970, and I had only less than three years of experience in countryside, only because someone had mercy on my mother who lived alone in Shanghai then and uh, had uh, all kinds of uh, sicknesses. My sister, who was four years older, was also sent down to the country very far in Heilongjiang and died there. Very unfortunate. So somebody had a mercy that uh, I was uh, arranged to be back to Shanghai to be with my mother. And my brother, who was six years older, stayed in countryside for 10 years. And a lot of uh, youngsters in my generation spent that length of time in the country. And many of them got settled in the country and never returned to their origin. And the Cultural Revolution ended in 1976. It lasted for entire 10 years. I didn't know anything much about the Great Leap Forward. I learned that when I read that book by Lisa C., uh, Shanghai Girls. I think you introduced me to that book. So that book and then her follow-up called Dreams of Joy, which is follow-up to Shanghai Girls. I don't know if you read that one, but that one, she talked about their daughter going back to China and was going through the Great Leap Forward. I remember when I was reading that book, I was like, this is, has to be all made up. I was like, no way this, this could be real. Obviously the story was made up, but she was pulling from historical events. So that's when I started reading and everything you're saying to me about that family with kids, you know, who are completely naked, they don't have anything. That was all part of that story. So it's really kind of crazy for me to hear you you know, validating everything you have read that did happen. Anybody who don't want to read a history book but want to understand sort of that history, I would recommend reading um, Shanghai Girls and Dreams of Joy by Lisa C. It's a beautiful story, beautifully written. You'll cry like crazy. I ugly cried throughout the entire book, both books. Um, but she really painted the picture. I could not believe 
that people lived through that period of time. And that's when I was like, okay, my mom lived through that period of time, you know, and it just, it's really, it's fascinating, but also just really scary to think that this, this happened and a little scary to see that history is sort of repeating itself as well. You know, again, we are not as bad as what it was, but you can see similarities in the ideology in the pulling away from education, right? Not believing scientists, not believing teachers, but instead, whatever your opinion now is the fact, that to me is so dangerous. And that kind of brings me back to what I've read through those books, which is why I was like, my mom to tell this story because history is starting to repeat itself and we have to learn from history. You can't forget about what happened Mm -hmm. before. And at what point did you think of escape? So my family um, immigrated from Hong Kong. And every time I hear about stories, when they do tell stories about Hong Kong, it's always about escape. <laughs> this is how we escaped from Hong Kong. This is what, you know, and they went one at a time. <laughs> like every, you know, one family tried it, then another family could try it. And then that's kind of how it passed on. And that's how they made it to California eventually, because that's where their whole family ended up being. But for, for you and your family, what did you guys think about during those times to escape? There were so many thoughts. <laughs> it's kind of a gem. And I came to the United States when I was uh, 33 not that young and uh, um, I did not speak English and I did not have money. It was a very difficult decision. I was determined the highest priority was to try to create opportunities for my child. And uh, I really did not want my child to repeat the life I had. Even though at that time, Cultural Revolution was over, but you look at the history, the modern history of China, ever since the communists took over. And there was a political movement one after another. The intellectuals were always the targets. And to be frank and, uh, uh, the development of China these days makes me very hopeful for its future. On the other hand, there are a lot of alarms or alarming facts that uh, make me very nervous as well. Judging by the history, they could uh, elevate it to another cultural revolution or another one of those political movements. So long story short, when I had the opportunity, I didn't hesitate. My purpose was to go and to establish myself and to get my daughter over. That was my very direct, simple goal. (laughs) And it was was very difficult. Interestingly enough, it was extremely difficult for um, literally probably millions of people, Chinese people who wanted to get out. The United States was the highest uh, desired place to come. Obviously, every year, there's just so many quota. And a lot of people just couldn't come. And I was fortunate enough that uh, by then, in 1986, that was uh, 10 years after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And Deng Xiaoping started the uh, reform. And uh, the country started open door. My father 
went back to his position to be the university president. And it so happened he established the first Chinese-American culture exchange center in Nanjing University in China and together jointly with the Johns Hopkins. So the entire consulate major personnel in Shanghai were invited to the ceremony of the opening of that center. And it so happened that when I went to the consulate to get visa, so many people stood outdoor and lined up for days to try to get in to apply for visa. Majority of them were rejected. But because of my my father's name, (laughs) just full circle. Yeah, I just immediately got such a warm welcome. And there was no problem for me to get the visa whatsoever. And uh, it happened so quickly, actually, I didn't have any time to prepare myself language-wise. And I just uh, collected the money almost like a donation from family members and had about a little over $1,000. And with my student visa, here I went, came to the States and started my new life without uh, knowing English. It was extremely difficult. But uh, every step, all those harsh times were just worth it. Just look at, uh, look at Yan, look at uh, my granddaughters. It's all worth it. That's a sacrifice. I, I don't know. I don't know about you, Yvonne, but that's a sacrifice. I have a really hard time imagining myself going through and just everything you mentioned. Next episode, we're going to go more into your stories of why you come to America, because, you know, that I think is really really eye-opening as well um but I do want to mention I mean you did eventually get an education you know I would love to kind of hear you know when you came back from the countryside you know how did you end up getting your education because you ended up being an engineer you know just to give my own little like background you know I was born in 82 and even when I was in elementary school I remember I had the little red book I remember back then that I, mean, I was really young in elementary school, so it wasn't filled with words, but there were pictures of Mao and there were like certain like words in there and we had to uh, like study from there. And I remember even in back when I was in elementary, critical thinking was not taught, right? No. Again, like how do you control billions of people? Was discouraged. Yeah, like I remember to this day, I have PTSD because I am afraid to ask questions because I will get hit or yelled by my teacher and be told I was dumb for asking a question. Right. So even now, even when I'm in Zoom meetings with my team and I want to ask a question, the first thought in my head is, why are you so dumb that you have to ask a question? Because that's literally drilled into me from a very young age. So I can see, you know, even when I was younger, critical thinking wasn't taught how it must have been when my mom was younger, you know, when Mao was still in charge. And again, I grew up thinking Mao was a hero because when I was in China, I was never taught. Mao was bad. I remember I have a very clear memory of when I was six or seven, I think I was in our apartment and I had said something about Deng Xiaoping I heard on the street. And the entire family was my dad, my aunts, they were all there. They all shushed me really quickly and be like, you can never enter enter that. Even in your own home for fear your neighbor might hear you. You And I was a little girl, but even then I remember that reaction, instant reaction from every single adult in the apartment 
turning to be like, you do not say that ever, you know, not out loud, not even in your own home. So that was the kind of environment that it was, how restrictive it was that you have to be aligned with that party. Otherwise you do not have a future in the country. That's, that's the way it, it was. And uh, uh, critical thinking was uh, absolutely forbidden. You know, Yan is super creative now um, and, and she's always been creative and, and I can see that it was, it definitely took, I think, just lifting that filter and just lifting that fear of showing who you are as a person inside and for you to be able to end up finishing all your schooling at whatever age it was and becoming an engineer and doing everything that you needed and living the life that you have now it must have been I don't know it, it also wasn't that long ago as well like it was only like 20 30 years ago and just seeing the life that you have now do you ever like sometimes wonder like like or are you fearful of like it happening again yes absolutely especially on January the 6th, when I was watching what's going on in DC. And that definitely that fear, I literally lost the sleep for days. And uh, so fearful that I, I kept nudging my husband and that we, we, we have to have a plan B. We have to have plan B. <laughs> I know my mom's being uh, trying to move to, telling everyone to move to Portugal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan B. <laughs> At least to get the multiple visas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that was that's the fear that you started uh, by going through the tough times in China, and that uh, it's almost like a second nature your in your 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 life in self protection. Americans, Caucasians, especially white men are at the top of the food chain, right? <laughs> like they have yeah. not experienced a lot of these traumas that, that minorities have experienced in their own culture, cultures, in their own countries. And this is where I feel like most of minorities I talk to now, we all have a plan B. We are set at getting a second citizenship for our children in Taiwan because my husband's Taiwan, unfortunately, Taiwan allows you to have dual citizenship. Um, a lot of minorities I know are making plan B, but I know a lot of Caucasians don't have a plan B. And for them, it's like, what's, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen? Because they haven't ha gone through that. I personally have not gone through what my mom has gone through, but I have heard it through history. I've read it through books. But also I feel this is where generation trauma comes in, that there's innate fear that we, I feel like we're almost, and minorities were born with, that anything happens where like, okay, something triggers, we might not have, gone through ourselves but there's something in our dna that's getting triggered and we know all right this is happening now we know looking through the future if this doesn't get fixed at a certain point this isn't going to get a lot worse so then we got to better go this way or have a plan to go in this way so that we can escape for our families but again this is where i feel like when you're vacation and you're off top of food chain you haven't gone through any of that that's when they're like, what's the worst that's gonna happen? Let's go just bring our guns and just shoot each other. What's the worst that's gonna happen? And that's so it's terrifying. A, it's a very, very concerning. And uh, yeah, if you remember, I had a, this very unfortunate uh, incident last year. And when I was uh, um, driving on the street at the corner and 
encountered this incident that a, a couple was uh, crossing the street and they thought I was uh, in their way. I backed off very politely, and uh, but uh, the man was just so angry and uh, shouted at me and things like, uh, uh, get out of my way and uh, you don't belong here. And uh, uh, I was literally shaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what the country had been turned to. And I also have this uh, conflicting thoughts that uh, on one hand, I wanted to be prepared to have a second choice. On the other hand, I just really think that uh, I or we should stay and fight. It's really hard to make your choice. That's the reality. And I, I couldn't never imagine, you know, more than 30 years after I came to this country, the world has turned almost upside down. And uh, obviously, I was a victim of uh, communism. But look at uh, what China has been doing, try to reform in many ways away from communism, in many ways still try to grasp communism. But they are moving forward so fast, it's scary. And on the other hand, in America, we're just busy fighting with each other. I can't keep thinking of those things because you literally lose sleep night after night. And what can you do? Yeah. Sometimes you feel so small because again, we're, you know, we're just one family, but I think what you said is true. You know, Sable and I have been talking about, do we want to just move out of the United States in general, right? We, we are getting dual citizenship in Taiwan, but remember you at one point, mom and I, we, you and I had a heart to heart and you told me you, you, because of everything Trump has turned this country into, you feel bad that you brought me here. But, and I told you, I don't, I am so happy you brought me here. You know, because at the end of the day, this is my home now. I spent more of my life here than I did in China. And you spent half your life here. This is our home. This is our country. I don't care what anybody says, you're not born here. But this is still, this is where we made our lives. So this is our country. This is where my children are born. You know, I don't even speak Mandarin that well anymore. This is my language. And I'll, everything I know is here. And I've always loved this country. I remember coming here and, and seeing how nice people are. Yes, I have encountered racism, but that was far and few. Even though when I moved here, we're in Marin and was Marin back then was like basically all white back when I first moved. You know, we didn't have an ESL class. Um, but people were nice. If anything, they were curious and they want to learn. They weren't like outright being mean to your face. And I remember that in my head and I have always loved the people in this country. But I think I've said in one of my previous episodes that I've changed now. Now there's the fear of people. I have a fear particularly of white men in this country. And that's never something I, I, I don't want to feel that way. You know, I don't, I've, I've experienced racism. I don't want to be racist towards people. And I'm not, 
and by saying I fear them, I'm not saying I'm racist towards them, but there's a genuine fear where if I see a white man walking towards me and I'm walking my dog by myself, I will be much more alert. I will turn down like my, my headphones and I will be very alert of what's my surroundings. And I don't want to feel that way, you know, being in my own home. But what you said is true. If we all leave, then who's going to fight for it, right? Then it's going to left to the people who who wants chaos and this country is going to turn more and more into chaos but this country I think at its core I still feel like this country has a lot of hope because at its core I feel like majority of people in this country want change and they want us to work together and they don't want us to be divided but we just gotta be more vocal and we gotta stand up and, and speak about it and this is one of our other reasons why I'm so proud of the Asian community right now because we as a community are a very quiet community. We don't interject ourselves into any drama, into any chaos. We usually are the ones standing on the side just observing and living our lives, but we are speaking up. And I think that's in injecting more voices that need to be heard. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm still anxious. You can probably hear my voice. I'm still anxious. My voice will shake when I talk about stuff like this, but I still have a lot, so much hope in there that it's gonna get better. I certainly share your your hope, and uh, that's really my hope too. And also, I'm retired, and uh, what I don't want is for my children and grandchildren to go through the discrimination. For me, I think really um, staying and the fight is the right thing to do. It's a very complicated times. Yeah, I know you don't want race us to experience racism, but the thing at the end of the day, I feel like racism at its core is in every single culture, not just in the United That's States. That's right. Even people in Asia, even people in China, we're discriminated against people outside. Thing people in Shanghai were discriminating people outside of Shanghai. I think part, racism is part part of the human nature, right. but it's we can overcome that human right. nature, and you don't have to act on racism, right? Racism could be also stereotypes. Yes, we all have our stereotypes of different cultures of different people, but you don't have to act on those. You can educate yourself and understand that this is just a stereotype. There are things that we can do to make it better. I think racism will continue. My children definitely are going to experience racism, but that's why I'm teaching them to speak out about it and to not take it quietly and to be smart about, you know, what happens when you encounter racism. Because it's, it's not going away. It is part of our history, but we as a human species need to come up and say, hey, this might be part of our DNA, but we are better than that, right? right? We are more involved than that. So let's evolve better and, and be above our base human nature. Right. Well, that's why leadership, the highest leadership is so important mm -hmm. that uh, um, you, you literally draw a line and uh, or you mother the base right now and we're heading towards the right direction let's hope hopefully let's all work together get the country in a better position for our kids mm -hmm. yeah and mom this has been a very very eye-opening episode i mean i feel like you just told the ultimate story um i hope Everybody who's listening can kind of hear in her voice, can, can feel like the struggle it was to grow up in China during that time. And again, if you want to read more into it, there's so many history books. And if you want something more, 
storytelling, then again, I would suggest Lisa C's books. She's she does a lot of research, and she all of her books are based in Chinese culture. So they're all all of them I read have been really good. But if you really want to understand like the Great Leap Forward, um, I would suggest reading uh, Shanghai Girls and Dreams of Joy. Again, they're a continuation of stories in two different books. It goes from I believe World War II through Great Leap Forward. So it's a really really interesting look into what it was like being in China during that time and also immigrating to the United States during that time. And, you know, mom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you have any other last words you want to kind of impart on this episode? Well, I, I, I don't feel that I had uh, organized my thoughts well enough. And uh, if you have uh, more questions, and next time we probably can make it up too. And yeah. yeah, I really hope. And we can always have you back. I'm always happy to have you back. This is such an important uh, period of time and uh, happening in, in the generation that currently still still living, most of us. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to my next generation, your generation, and your children, my my grandchildren. And I really think what you're doing is so important to uh, keep the life to the history and uh, to let the, the children know and learn about it. And there are a lot of a very complicated uh, concepts involved. It's not really simple black and white. No. So life is never black and white. And yeah. so it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of times I feel like uh, my, my mind is jammed by a lot of uh, conflicting, conflicting thoughts. <laughs> it's not a one answer to a question. There are, there are multiple answers. Yeah, well, I think it'll be easier if I ask you historical facts, right? But I told you in the beginning of the recording that we weren't looking for historical facts. Anybody yeah. can go pick up a history yeah. book and find those and Google and find those. What I want here is real emotions of your memories. And that's going to be complicated because when you have emotions involved, of course, it would be hard for you to get your words out because you're, you're dealing with your emotions. Because anytime we talk about a traumatizing time here, we go right back into that mind state, right? And you feel like you're living through that again. And like you said in the beginning of the episode, that's, that's hard. You know, I can't imagine that must be really hard for you. So I think you did a great job telling, you know, explaining what it was like growing up that period, which was the point of this episode was what it was like, right? Anybody who wants more facts, Google it. <laughs> it's all, it's all <laughs> internet. Good, good. Just ask me any um, uh, questions anytime. If you doing your editing, if you feel like something is missing or something, uh, uh, there are gaps that you wanted to fill up and uh, I'm here just uh, call yeah. yeah and for any of our listeners if you may have additional questions go ahead and email us or message us or dm dm us on instagram we can take a list of questions so we can do maybe do a Q&A with my mom as well so that she can see all your questions and and come up with answers for you know whatever you're wondering yeah well thank you so much for having um the time and the stories thank you love you guys yeah thank you mom. love we you love girls you. <laughs> thank you 
And everyone stay tuned. We're going to have a follow-up second episode with my mom. And that one will focus on her experience in America, which again is another, you know, inspiring, somewhat traumatizing story here and there, but, but ultimately inspiring because of what she's able to achieve. So I hope you guys all tune back in for the second episode. Um, but until then, Thank you for everyone for listening. Um, we will, we hope you have a great day and we will chat with you soon. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really appreciate your support for our little podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it will mean the world to us if you can leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. This will help more people discover our podcast. You can find Lost and Refound podcast on Instagram at lost.and.refound. If you want to email us, you can do so at lostandrefoundpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I hope you stay positive and creative. Bye.